Welcome to Critics Not Cynics, the podcast that tries to prove that you can be a critic without being a cynic. And on today's episode, it's probably going to be a little bit of a shorter one just because it's been a busy week and we're hitting the uh, busy season at my full-time job, so finding time and lots of time to sit down and go into full length and long-term discussions and dissections of film or video games or books or any other pop culture thing. Uh, It's going to be a little tight here for the next two months or so, um, mainly because this is just our our busy time of the year, so it gets very stressful, and finding some free time is is very necessary during this bit. So uh, I think I'm only going to be talking about three... um, Three film reviews, one a documentary, another is a screener um, that I was sent, uh, and the other is uh, the newest release this weekend. Um, before um, I go into that, I do want to talk about some news with the, the DC uh, streaming service um, with their cancellation of Swamp Thing. So if you follow me on Twitter, uh, you might have seen me post up my initial reaction of the first episode. And in fact, uh, next weekend, I believe uh, my uh, co-host, Pat, who's been on the show before. um, Yes, it's very funny. Both of our names are Pat. He usually goes by Pat. I usually go by Patrick. Um, But, you know, it'll be fun to try to keep us apart when we're uh, doing this uh, more together when he's uh, back in the area and has more more free time. But uh, I think we're going to do more of an actual review of the show um, next weekend. But I had a very positive reaction um, to the first episode. And then, for some reason, the DC uh, outlet decided that they were going to announce that the show was quote-unquote canceled. Now, it's not due to streaming numbers per se or about how many people watched it it's more due to uh, some financial um, crumbling that happened they were supposed to receive uh, x amount in tax credits and then the tax credits fell through which then ended up being that they had to pay more for the show um, and that it cost them more and they right now do not currently have the subscriber base of a Netflix, a Hulu, or an Amazon Prime. And so they don't really have the money to make up for the loss that they're kind of taking on this right now. And it's really disappointing. Uh, I mean, I can understand from a financial perspective why they're making this decision, but they should not necessarily have made this decision prior to the rest of the season airing. Now, I will be watching it through but when netflix announced its uh, cancellation of the marvel shows um i barely finished i had already finished luke cage season two and i think i'd finished iron fist season two or maybe was just close enough to finishing uh, iron fist season two when they announced its cancellation but as for daredevil season three and punisher season two and the upcoming jessica jones season three i've not really bothered to sit down and watch them or make time to watch them because I know that it's done. Now, I know that uh, Punisher Season 2 got very positive responses. I know Daredevil Season 3 got very positive responses. And I plan on getting to them eventually. But, uh, you know, there's this thing of 
right now we're in kind of the streaming wars between these these you know the major three Hulu Amazon and uh, Netflix and now these kind of burgeoning properties that um, kind of want to make their own uh, product and make their own um, money uh, in in that market but it's not really great to try to develop your own streaming service without content pre-existing so what I would have recommended before DC launched their their streaming platform was uh, yes they had plenty of back catalog shows to put on there and I'm thankful for that but I would not have actually uh, released the streaming service until uh, you had a full season of Titans you had a full season of Doom Patrol you had a full season of Swamp Thing I think uh, if you had maybe four or five of your original content ready at launch. And and although I appreciate the week-to-week release, uh, just because I don't quite have time to sit down and binge watch uh, shows, I, I really have a hard time. Uh, maybe if I had someone I was watching those shows with, it'd be a little bit easier. But uh, I do have a hard time binge watching nowadays because I just there's so much I want to watch, so much I want to play on video games, so much I want to read book uh and books and so it, it's a little bit hard to try to kind of balance all 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 of those what i want to do on my weekend and in my free time um so i think it would have been smart that they would have maybe had a full slate of original programming that would have been available at launch and that would have meant that they probably would have needed to delay it another year i think if it would have launched this year instead of the end of last year um with three to four shows um because, I mean, they have Stargirl that's going to be coming out, I think, uh, July, maybe August, maybe a little bit later. Because I know that the second block of Young Justice is going to be coming up here, I think, at the end of uh, when Swamp Thing hits its last episode. Um, but really, I, I, I understand for the financial reasons why uh, they are not going to move on with a season two. Um, but I would hope that um well one they should have waited until all 10 episodes were up um you know you because that really hurts the for those that signed up purely for the show and i know that there are plenty of of them because i've seen it on twitter where people were signing up to the service specifically for the swamp thing show and the first episode was killer i mean the practical effects the story was really good um they they set it up really well uh, they they definitely have me coming back for the second episode and 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 quite frankly and I know Titans got a lot of crap but I enjoyed Titans season one and I've enjoyed I haven't finished uh, Doom Patrol season one yet um, like on episode seven and um, I've really enjoyed Doom Patrol uh, it's quirky and zany and and fun and so you know to me all their shows have been hits that they've done really well with with their uh, I think out of the three, Titans is maybe the, the, the least of a hit, but I think they kind of found their footing with Doom Patrol, and I feel like they had continued it with Swamp Thing, and I know Swamp Thing kind of sits outside of what they their kind of established universe for the platform, but I feel like they could have, you know, maybe integrated it later on if they had the desire to. Um, it could have been isolated enough and then and then integrated if, if there was a very positive response to it. But... Um, Swamp Thing, I mean, you, you, from the images that you've seen and then from what you get at the very end of episode one, uh, looks fantastic. 
and and uh, I was a fan of the Dick Durock show, and I mean that wasn't necessarily a great Swamp Thing show, but it was fun. And I remember I used to have a VHS of the failed cartoon series, and I loved watching that VHS over and over again. So, uh, you know, I, I I just think it was wrong choice at the time. I, I don't even think that they necessarily needed to say that they canceled it. Uh, I don't even think that they needed to say that they needed to renew it. I think that they needed to say, hey, due to some financial reasons we're we're going to hold off on it on a season uh two for now uh, we're going to delay it for maybe a year or two see if we can't uh you know move some things around and try to um, bring it back for another season later on um, because as we've seen with netflix uh you people are fine for waiting a year for a new season uh, of a series that they really like and sometimes even longer than that we've seen it with game of thrones you know on the, on hbo um so i i feel like this was maybe the wrong move but maybe hopefully in their back pocket they're they're kind of quietly going okay you know and i think this is a foregone conclusion i think that the dc streaming service as it is will go away uh once the warner media uh streaming service launches now, it doesn't mean that it's going to go away completely. I feel like that since they've already announced that uh, Titans is getting a season two, uh, I feel like it's probably going to more merge with the Warner Media streaming platform. And uh, if that's the case, if it's going to be kind of like a, a subset uh, of the Warner Media streaming platform, uh, I will probably still subscribe to it purely for that i mean there will be other reasons why to subscribe to that uh, streaming service in, in of itself uh, especially if from what i understand it's going to include cinemax so then if i can get my cinemax included with uh with um the warner media streaming platform that will eliminate basically i will go from paying 15 dollars a month for cinemax to then 15 dollars to get uh you know if there's the dc content dc all the other warner media uh, back catalog and cinemax then that's fantastic. That's going to be a great deal in the long run. Um, so I, I, I feel like, you know, you should have, they should have just waited, say, hey, we're, we're going to take a break. Uh, we're not going to do a season two right away, uh, you know, due to this unfortunate um, financial situation, we're going to hold off and we're going to um, just wait till we can, you know, get things settled. I think that would have been a smarter thing, especially when, after you announce the cancellation, then you're putting ads on Facebook, you're putting ads on Twitter, you're putting ads on other social media platforms, all, you know, hyping up the next episode, and people, rightfully so, are all commenting on it, why why care? Why do I care? Um, so I hope that it's not, quote-unquote, truly canceled. Um, I hope that it's just kind of put on a back burner, that they're going to see how, you know, depending on how the Stargirl show goes, what goes on with the Warner Media streaming platform, um, what other, uh, you know, financial situations that might come that might help benefit or, or, or kind of give them a, a, a swell up uh, of cash flow so that then they can bring the show back. Because like I said, I, I think it fired on all cylinders. Doesn't mean the rest of the, the season's gonna work, but that first episode was really killer in my opinion. Um, I loved every second of it. Uh, I even loved that the focus was on Abby Arcane. You know, a lot of people didn't like that it focused on her and not so much on Alec Holland. 
Um, but I, I liked it because I liked seeing her perspective. I know Alex's story. I would have uh, liked for him to have played more, uh, come to more of the forefront of the first episode. But considering that, you know, we know what Alex's fate is and that, you know, the core of the show is going to be about Swamp Thing, uh, you know, I was kind of okay with it. So um, I just want to kind of get voice my thoughts and my opinions on, on that situation. Uh, it's upsetting. It's disappointing. I had a feeling it was going to happen when uh, they announced that they were cutting the three episodes because of, of, of money and then reevaluating the future uh, of whether or not it's the future of the streaming service or the future of the show. Um, you know, it, at times it, it's, it's hard being a DC person. I mean, personally, I love both Marvel and DC comics, but I've always been more of a DC uh, person. I have Superman is my favorite superhero. Uh, you know, close second is, is Batman tied with uh, Green Arrow and then Flash. And Swamp Thing has always been a character that I've always enjoyed and I've always had fun with. And I think it's mainly because of that cartoon I, I would watch all the time as a kid. So it's really kind of saddening to see that this, this happens to a character that I, I love a lot. And, uh, and then also, you know, just with all the drama that goes on with the DC movies, which I think uh, that they're, they're finding their footing right now. Um, as many of you might have seen the, the poster that they revealed for Wonder Woman uh, 84. Uh, I've, I, there's been a, some stuff going around the internet saying that the Wonder Woman movie is actually going to be the Flashpoint movie instead of it being Flash's movie. It's going to be Wonder Woman. And as long as they do it right, I have no issue with that. And, and the poster seems to kind of confirm that because the armor that she is wearing in that poster is very reminiscent of the armor she wore during the, the Flashpoint uh, event series. So because um, I think that they've, they've found steady hits with, with Shazam and um, oh, an Aquaman. Uh, you know, if they've got a recast Flash, and of course we've got Robert Pattinson now playing the young Batman in, in the, um, in the uh, Matt Reeves now Batman trilogy, which, uh, you know, I'm not necessarily a huge Robert Pattinson fan. I think he does have a huge hurdle to overcome, overcome from the Twilight series. I haven't seen too many movies outside that he's been in outside of that. I mean, I haven't seen the Twilight movies, but I know of him, know of him being in it. I know of the criticisms of those movies. Um, I can't say I've seen too many movies outside of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire that I've actually seen him in, so I can't say much for his his acting ability. Um, but I'm not going to be one of those people that says, like, oh, we need to sign a petition and get him off of it. I'm gonna give him a chance. Uh, like I was, I was very skeptical of uh, Christian Bale, and then I saw Equilibrium before Batman Begins comes out, and I was like, as soon as the uh, there's a gunfight sequence in the dark, and uh, as soon as I saw that sequence, I was like, oh yeah, this man's got it. Like he may not look like necessarily a Bruce Wayne to me or a Batman figure to me, but you know, to be honest, neither Michael Keaton. And Michael Keaton's my number one Batman. Uh, other than the voice of Batman, Kevin Conroy. I mean, Kevin Conroy is probably my, my number one Batman, but my number one live-action Batman is, is going to probably be Michael Keaton, just because I grew up on the 89 Batman film, The Batman Returns, and the saw for, uh, Batman Forever with Val Kilmer, Batman and Robin uh, with George Clooney. I saw those both in the theaters as a kid, uh, and they never topped Michael Keaton for me in live-action format. Um, so, you know, if... If Wonder Woman 84 kind of reboots the DC universe in a soft way, uh, allow us to keep actors like uh, Jason Momoa as Aquaman, keep Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman, 
uh, just depending on what they're going to do with Superman. Um, you know, I'm I'm not one for the Michael B. Jordan to be Superman camp because I just that's unless they do it right and unless it's part of this like you know reboot of the uh, film universe. Uh, I just I'd rather him play a Superman from another world, part of the multiverse, because uh, I'm, I'm more in line with that. And I mean, there's established history of that in the comic books. So uh, I just don't. I, I liked Henry Cavill a lot uh, as uh, Superman, and I love Man of Steel. I love Batman v Superman, and I even like Justice League, even though it's not. I know it wasn't what uh, Zack Snyder had planned, and. Um, so I think like it, it's been worked being a DC fan and I've loved the Marvel movies uh, they've had their hits and misses a little bit with me um, you know nothing too egregious I think their biggest miss for me was Captain Marvel but uh, you know I just got that in the mail today I'm going to be giving that a rewatch here before too long to see if my opinions changed on it because I think that that's one thing we don't do enough as um fans of cinema especially with certain movies that we have kind of a visceral negative reaction is you know after seeing it give it a give it a little bit of a break and then revisit it and then see if your opinion might change on it a little bit so that might be uh, an upcoming episode of the podcast as a as kind of a a revisit a, a revamp of a review see if maybe my opinion changed any more from the first episode of the podcast because that was the first movie I, re I reviewed for this podcast um and which you know, I know 104 plays uh, just on SoundCloud is not necessarily a big number, but that's a big number for me. I'm just amazed that it was you know played 100 times, at least 100 times. Uh, so you know, I think it's it's worth a, a revisit. So, and again, uh, sorry if my audio kind of cuts in and out. Looks like my my computer's lagging again a little bit. So if there's any kind of screw up in the audio. Apologies. Uh, I've looked at, uh, I think I've found a potential laptop that I'm, I'm going to be upgrading to here in the future. Uh, so hopefully when I do that, things will kind of run a little bit more smoothly and then I can actually start looking at getting these onto iTunes as well and maybe start looking at getting it on Spotify um, and uh, maybe Stitcher and, and Podbean and Castbox. See if I can start branching it out onto other platforms. Um, but anyways, yeah, that's just kind of my thoughts on that. Uh, I, I wanted to address it, and, and uh, you know, because I, I I was day one, as soon as they announced the pre-order for the DC streaming service, I was on there. I haven't really used it a whole lot for the, the comics aspect of it. Uh, I've used it a lot more for watching some of the animated shows that I have not watched, and uh, I've had some fun with that. Um, and I've enjoyed their, their live-action content. Um, so I, I don't want it to go away completely. I'd like it to stay around if it does merge with the Warner Media platform. Uh, I won't have any complaints about that uh, as long as they can keep that new content coming because I think they've they've really done something there. And, and like I said with the movies, I think that they've started to find uh, they've started to find their ground. They're no longer trying to just play catch up the to uh, to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. All right, so. I'm going to go ahead and move into a, uh, a film review that I wanted to, I've been meaning to do for a while now. Um, and it was, I got a screener for this and it's called Scary Stories and it's a documentary about the, uh, the scary stories to tell in the dark. And since that is an upcoming movie here in October and you better believe that will be uh, covered um, 
when it comes out. This was a really good documentary. Um, there was only one part of it that I was not necessarily a fan of, but it was mainly one person's personal opinion, and uh, they were injecting their personal politics into it and trying to sell a narrative that I didn't agree with. And if that's that's one thing you might hear me harp on a lot. Like, I don't want to talk about politics. It's not the point of this podcast. Um, we get enough of that on, on social media. We get enough of it from our news media. We're all kind of set in our own political uh, ideologies. But my, my big thing is try to keep personal politics out of entertainment. It's fine to do it uh, subtly. Um, but when it's overt, like, uh, I will talk about it when I get to the Dark Phoenix review, it, it, it takes me out of the experience and it, it tell it shows the man behind the curtain, the Wizard of Oz, you know, it shows the, the political machine or the machinations of those involved with the production instead of me being able to enjoy the story or enjoy the, the film and, and enjoy my entertainment. Um, you know... It, it, it just it really gets it gets frustrating but um, for the most part this documentary fires on all cylinders um, you have um, um, oh gosh I, I'm, I'm sorry I'm blanking right now but you have the son of the author of, of the books uh, for some reason I am blanking on the author's name um, but we all know the scary stories to tell in the dark books uh, but it, but it, this documentary includes his son, and you get a little bit of a, a look at the relationship he had with his father, why uh, you know his father wrote these stories, and kind of how embarrassed he was when some controversy came up, uh, you know, in schools where there were, uh, and and you get this perspective from from uh, it, it presented to you within the documentary from like parents groups who were saying that these books promoted uh, Satanism or that they were inappropriate to have in schools and in school libraries. And you even have um, interviews with a librarian who dealt with a superintendent and, and a parent. And uh, there, so there was like, this does a really good job showing you because there were things I didn't know about it. I mean, we had them in our school library. I had the books, you know, um, at home I bought. I've lost them since, or they're somewhere, you know, packed away in a box somewhere. But I bought the three pack um, that had all three books together, and I've been rereading them and enjoying them. And they're, I, I realize now as an adult that they're a lot lighter on content, but I remember how scary they scared me when I was a child, and how, or how scary they were when I was a child, and how much they scared me. And the, the illustrations in there, and how they were just really good. Uh, short stories and just really good books and they were more just a celebration of folklore and urban legends and I mean I think that's why I like the urban legends movie so much is because it's like that's it's it's almost like a, a film version of all those stories that we read in those books when we were children and uh, you know you get interviews with R.L. Stein, and I mean I was a Goosebumps kid I was reading Goosebumps before kindergarten during kindergarten watched the TV show um, so it was it was really uh, a really good documentary. It's not super long, but the the part that really kind of annoyed me was, and, and maybe I'm, I, I will admit, maybe I just don't know because I'm not in school anymore, and I don't, uh, I, I don't hear this from anyone that I know that works in education. 
but uh, it, it's a possibility. But I, I that wasn't kind of the purpose of, of the documentary was to have one particular interviewee, and she says the um, the type of it wasn't complete censorship, but the fact that the movement was out there to remove these books from school uh, libraries, and she equates it to books written by LBGTQ um, authors, and that that's happening today, and that there's been this movement from parents and from schools to remove these books from their libraries. I don't I don't believe that's really based in fact. Do I think that there are maybe some parents who do not want their children reading books by authors that are LBGTQ? Quite possibly. I, I'm not going to say that that's completely invalid, but I have not seen anything on the news, anything on social media, anything anywhere saying that there are these active movements, these active demonstrations to remove these books um, from schools and to not allow children to read them. Do I think that there maybe should be for children that are of an older age that are maybe in their late teens? Yes. I don't think that it's good to necessarily confuse young children um, with books that are about questioning one's sexuality or things that break out of the sexuality norm because I think it's once you're past puberty and then you're well set in your ways then I think it's more okay because puberty is a very confusing time for people when they're growing because it's it's hormones and your body's out of equilibrium and you know you don't know up from down so I, I just don't feel like there's an equivalency that this girl uh, or this woman rather or uh, sorry if I'm I'm not using the correct pronouns, but uh, they just kind of, in my opinion, make an argument that's not necessarily based on facts because this documentary really uh, shows the facts that um, that there was active uh, active movements, and in fact, you have one person from that movement who tried to get these books taken out, and it's not because of the author, but because that they presented what they thought was inappropriate content in the sense of uh, violent, uh, horrific, uh, promoted Satanism, promoted uh, paganism, uh, and, and that just were not good for young children. But I, I will say, uh, and this didn't have to deal with necessarily the scary stories to tell in the dark books, but it was dealt with the Goosebumps books, and, uh, and it was R.L. Stein talking about it, and they actually had the video from the, I, I, was a, I guess a board meeting with the school board and a father, and this was a really touching and really poignant moment in the documentary where, you know, R.L. Stein talks about, he remembers this, where this guy comes up to talk to the school board and he's got a stack of Goosebumps books. And he's defending the, the books because he says, uh, and you can tell by the way he talks and you have the video evidence in, in the documentary, he talks about how he's afraid that if the school were to remove these books, these books his daughter loves, and she loves reading them and it's uh, made her want to read and you can tell by the way he talks he's not really well educated uh, he I believe he might have been a single father uh, but very low income and his concern was if the school were to take these books away his daughter would not want to read and she would turn out like him and she would not be able to succeed in life and it's a really poignant moment in the documentary and and I agree, and I and I know that feeling because I think the Goosebumps books made me want to read. I mean, my whole family is a bunch of readers, and uh, my parents did their best to make sure that I would want to read. And I think, uh, 
my sister and I are the most out of the three of us that love reading. My brother is just now really starting to read. He hated reading for most of school and most of high school and some of college, but now later in life he's revisiting books and he's enjoying it more. And I mean, there's nothing wrong with you if you don't like reading, but uh, it, 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 it's, a way, it's a way outside to escape reality and, and also to read other things. Like I'm reading, uh, you know, I found this book that is called Ohio and it's de uh, a debut fiction novel. And um, I've been moving slowly through it just because it's, it's very it's very dry, but I don't mean that as a negative criticism. It's, it's very interesting and it's, um, I'm, I'm, I'd say it's mainly a left book on the political spectrum. Uh, I'm hoping another character that comes later on in the book maybe will shift that. I, I like when authors are able to show both sides of that argument, characters on both sides, make fun of both sides. Um, I'm, I'm more of a centrist when it comes to that type of thing because, like, uh, you know, there's enough criticisms on both sides of that spectrum that you could uh, actively make. And I think if you leave one where it's a little over lopsided, where you're presenting one side more than the other, it, it, it can alienate an audience. But anyways... Uh, it's a very interesting book and, and the fact that it's set in Ohio I live in Ohio, it's really cool to have those kind of landmarks and references um, but anything that promotes reading I think is really good regardless of and, the, and this goes back to like the LBGTQ author or uh, authors I have no problem, if it, if it makes someone want to read more I have no problem with that but if it's something where it's dealing with a subject that's more I think needed to be thought about at a higher uh, level than maybe grade school I'm thinking more high school and even then more maybe junior senior year of high school I think that's where you, you that's probably the best where it's supposed to be I don't think it should be necessarily a children's book that's that's putting those ideas forth per se but that's just a personal opinion and that's not me attacking anybody or, or saying it's wrong um, you know I, I don't think anybody should be censored or that any necessary necessarily any books should be prevented from someone being uh from someone being able to read them so uh it, it was a very touching uh documentary i highly recommend it i know it's out on streaming uh i was very happy to get a screener for this it took me too long to get to it but uh i had a really good time with it i think it's a really good primer to watch prior to going and seeing the movie and or even just you know watch it before you reread the books if you want to so uh, I'm going to give it a, a 4.5 out of 5. Uh, I think the only reason I kind of take some points off is it, it's a little too short. It's only an hour and 24 minutes. Um, I wish it would have been a little bit longer, would have kind of delved into more, um, more of the author's history. I mean, it does, but it doesn't, since he's passed, you know, it doesn't really work in that sense of, like, you can't really ask him, like, why did he do it? Why did he want to do it? Where did he research? Uh, but it, it does enough for me to really enjoy it and talk about uh, why these books have kind of lived well on past him and why they continue to scare people today. And you can see it in the documentary. They talk to musicians. They talk to artists. They talk to uh, other writers. Uh, I can't remember if there are any filmmakers in there. But you could see how much it's influenced people and it's influenced people's lives and their and their crafts and what they have gone on to do and uh there's some really impressive uh, diorama works that some people make in there of the illustrations and I, that would have been something i would have pr uh preferred that they had 
introduced into the documentary, but they probably did not uh, have the ability to. Uh, but I wish they would have been able to talk to the artist, but they might have not been able to. He might not allowed them to interview him. Um, but it does also kind of end with an interview between the author's son and the woman who was kind of the head of the, the movement out in Washington State to have these books removed from the children's library or from the school libraries. And uh, it's, it's a really interesting moment to kind of have those two opposing viewpoints enter, introduce each other and then still talking about it like 30 years since these books were originally published, maybe 25 to 30 years since they were originally published. Uh, so I highly recommend you go check this out. Check it out before you go see the movie. Uh, I, I will probably end up buying this, especially if it comes out on a physical release. I will buy this at some point. So that's going to do it for this uh, review. Uh, 4.5 out of 5. Definitely go check it out. So the next uh, movie I want to discuss is um, Soul to Keep. And this was a, a screener was sent to me by... I want to say it was the director, but it might have been one of the writers. Um, hang on one second. I have to pull up my Twitter, make sure I give him credit because I know he wants to. Yes, David Allensworth, I believe. Back IMDb back up. Yes, the director and writer of this movie. Uh, he sent it to me on Twitter, asked if, uh, I, would, if I had seen it, uh, if I would like to review it, and he sent me a screener for it. Thank you, David. I watched this last night after uh, coming home from Dark Phoenix. I watched it out on the deck. It was a nice night to sit out and watch a movie um, out here in Ohio. And uh, it was a nice, cool night. Wind blowing, had the dog out with me, had the speakers out. Um, and so the, the basic premise of this movie is Beelzebub, a powerful demon hellbent to possess and consume souls, goes after siblings and their lifelong friends at a rundown country house. So... Uh, this works on a, lo a lot of levels. This is very much uh, like an Evil Dead movie. Um, although it's not necessarily a cabin out in the woods, it's more of like a farmhouse out in the middle of nowhere. And I, I actually like that. It changed it up a little bit. It kind of changed that formula. And there are, um, I want to say, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, like eight people. Uh, nine, uh, seven people. Sorry, I'm I'm looking too much at the cast and some of the other characters that play later things in the film. Um, just like eight, seven friends um, who are all out here. Uh, you know, they're uh, it's the two main uh, two of the main characters, the twins. Uh, it's their grandfather's house. Their grandfather's passed away, uh, so they're just going up there for the weekend to just kind of have fun. They're they're college age, uh, kind of get the feeling that they're near the end of their college careers uh they're just going up there to party and have fun you've got your your druggie you've got your uh your vlogger you've got your uh, goth girl you've got your good girl you've got your intellect girl you got your party girl you got your party guy you got your sports guy and you got your nice guy so you've got the full spread of of characters and uh it, it works really well i mean the the there are a couple scenes that I wasn't necessarily a huge fan of, but I understand kind of like why they were thrown in there. But um, the, the friendships feel real, the relationships feel real. And the strongest thing of this film is uh, the character Tara, uh, played by Sandra May Frank. And um, when, uh, when David sent me the 
sent me the DM on Twitter asking if I had seen it or heard anything about it. I looked at the trailer and I was wondering in the trailer why people were, were, were talking but signing. And, and then I realized, oh, one of the characters is deaf and Tara is deaf. And it added a, a nice layer to this movie. Um, and she is fantastic. I mean, she's by far the standout role in, in this movie. Um, and because, like, I mean, she just... The things they do with her, the, the way she acts, the way uh, the climax plays out is really well done. She gives it her all. I mean, standout role. I think the, the follow-up uh, to her would be the... Uh, the character Grace, played by Kate Rose Reynolds, uh, who is um, tiny spoilers, the one who who gets kind of possessed first and is kind of the the main antagonist through the rest of the film. Um, but the they you know of course it's in the basement and they find a weird setup and they think that their um, grandfather was maybe involved in some satanic stuff and they find kind of a, a Necrocom esque book. Uh, filled with spells and of course grace is is the goth kind of emo girl who's into you know she's i think dark, i think one of the characters calls her a, wi a witch and then she goes no i'm a dark wiccan or a wi or dark wicca or some some such i know i'm getting that necessarily wrong but uh you know she of course is the one who reads the spell and um and then you know hilarity ensues and the, a lot of the effects are practical. That's that's one, uh, what I really like about this is, um, and I mean, I'm sure that it really is, comes down to budget, but uh, the, effects are fa uh, the effects are practical, pardon my, my stammer there. Uh, and I think that that's what helps kind of keep it grounded, keep it realistic. Now, um, there are a lot of cool sequences. There, uh, There's the sequence where Grace is kind of they're all partying uh, after they've read from the book and she's twirling at the party you know something's not right and uh, she then sees this kind of figure and then she kind of slowly turns around and the figure's still there and the figure came out from nowhere and the figure then comes at her and it's like it's really cool in a possession type movie when you actually can see the force like the force that's going to possess the person and I, I really liked that and um but the parts that I didn't like are the the kind of the sex scenes. Um, they now it's it happens in every horror film, but there there's just some questionable ones. Uh, I, like not necessarily reason needed, and it's mainly the one that really bugs me. And it happens out in the out in the woods. Like it just didn't make any sense, and then it went a little too far for me. Like nothing super bad, but it was just like I'm sitting there going why is this here why is this happening um but it's a very clever film uh one and i think that they, i think this is probably where they put most of their money into it is the effect that so once uh things are kind of going down and escalating and and people are starting to kind of be picked off one by one uh one of the characters is just like screw this i'm leaving and he goes and he tries to go out and he just stops he can't get past the the uh the gateway out the out on the driveway to get out onto the main road and it's like a clear dome bubble and you can hear you can see him push his hand up and it actually looks like it's pushing up against something solid and it's it's really cool effect and it's used a few times in the movie and it's used really well 
and uh, and I, I just everyone kind of did their job with with this film. You know, everyone was very competent in the rules. Uh, in fact, there's a kind of touching scene when one of the, the characters, I believe it's Toby, is talking about how he met his girlfriend, um, like back in like second grade, and then like what he what he did to try to like show that he was interested in her, and it was just kind of very touching and very well done. And the sign language seems like they really don't take away from the film. In fact, I think they enhance it. And the fact that, like, it's not just one person that signs. Everyone is, is, is signing. Like, they, that tells you how close this group of friends are, that they know sign enough to, to, to be able to communicate with one of their friends who happens to be deaf. And like I said, Tara, Tara the character of Tara is amazing, is fantastic, is a strong character. Uh, there's, a, in fact, a scene that I thought was... It was a little comedic, and I mean, it's it's kind of meant to be comedic, where someone's trying to get her attention while they're being attacked, and she's busy reading from the book to kind of understand the spells that are in this book. And you, you've got her in the foreground, and in the background, you've got this character who's, like, he even throws, tries to throw his shoe far enough to just, like, get her, to catch her eye. And he's getting, like, just pummeled and pummeled and pummeled in the background. And, you know, he's screaming, but of course she can't hear him. And um, and then, like, you know, something else happens. And finally, like, when her attention is gotten, it's, it's like, you know, it's an actual moment of shock for her because she obviously can't know that this is going on. And uh, I think that's where this movie really succeeds. And it really kind of stands out a little bit um, because you don't normally have a character that has this type of handicap, let alone have them be i think like i think she's primarily the main character she, i mean every it's it's an ensemble piece but she is the main character in, in all of this and uh i really enjoyed her performance i really enjoyed this movie i got lost a little bit on some of the explanation there is a twist i did not see coming like there was something i saw that was very evident at the very beginning like when you like when you're watching you're like oh yeah oh yeah that yeah there's there's something there but then when the when a twist happens near the end and everything's kind of revealed of what's going on or why it's going on you're like oh well they perfectly explain that but there were some things that were that kind of like i and it may have been because i i was my my parents had ended up coming home and they were out on deck with me and um they happened to be that some of the scenes that uh, I've I just talked about were playing so I would turn the volume down because it's a little uncomfortable yes we're all adults but you know the one scene was a little too much for me in my opinion so then I might have had the volume turned down a little too low that I couldn't quite hear what some of the characters were saying in explanation of, of certain character motivations so um I might have missed a little bit there, but it's got a very clever ending, and it's and it's also set itself up for another film if um, David is so lucky to be able to do one or has an idea for one, and someone else wants to adapt it for him. So I think I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna land on a I, I think I'm gonna land on a three point five because it's it is very clear that it's more of an independent film that the, some of the budget is a little bit lower, but. Uh, a lot of it worked for me. The camera worked, worked. The characters worked. Uh, so some of the special effects really worked for me. Uh, but there were some scenes that just didn't quite make sense. And like I said, I think um, I might have missed some bits that quite 
that may have given me a more full round experience to like maybe knock it up to a four. Um, but I, I do want to thank David for sending me the screener. Um, I know I'm going to have, uh, he, he's going to help, uh, promote this when, when I, uh, put the episode live cause he wanted me to let him know when it was going to go live so he could kind of promote it on his social media. Um, I'm really excited to see if he's, I don't know if I've seen anything else or if he's done anything else. Um, looks like he's produced a few things, uh, this movie and a couple other stuff. Um, does not look, okay, he has directed some other stuff, uh, uh, one other, I think, film back in 2012. Um, it's not something I've seen, but I really hope that, uh, and, and actually I'm looking, as I'm looking at his, uh, his uh, IMDb, it says utilizes the strength in story development and production resources. Uh, they, that's very true. He, he, he knows character development. He knows story. And it's very evident in this. And that's what I really did like is that his, his story was good. Uh, it, it kept me entertained. It kept me locked into it. It's a little light on gore, but it's, it's a little bit different. Like that's, that's what I like about it is that it, it takes a little bit different road than your average possession horror film or kind of your evil dead horror film is it's very light on the gore but it does that doesn't take away from the film itself the film is still interesting without like massive gruesome deaths or you know bodies being ripped apart or things like that because there there's a there's a plan there's a reason and it's very compelling it's very well done uh i hope he has maybe an idea for a sequel um in fact, kind of with how it ends, I would almost see this being like maybe a prequel to uh, if you've seen Dead Mary uh, with Dominique Swain, which is very much a, a an Evil Dead film, an Evil Dead type film uh, that I absolutely love. Maybe you could almost connect these two two uh, movies together retroactively when I think about it, because it's they almost kind of feel like they fit in the same universe a little bit. Um, but I, yeah, I think a 3.5, I think I'm going to have to give it a rewatch to see if maybe I knock that up to a four and see if there's bits that I missed that maybe fill out more of what I didn't quite understand uh, for some characters. But uh, definitely check this out. I think you can um, stream it. Yeah, you can rent it on, on Prime. Um, I don't know if you can get it on physical, but I, I, don't, I don't think it's on Netflix. But if you've got, you know, $3.99 to spare, um, give it a rent, give it a checkout. I, I, I don't think you'll be completely disappointed. Of course, I love all types of horror films, and I love objectively not good films. I talked about this on the last episode of the podcast. Generally, if something entertains me enough, I will definitely revisit it or want to maybe own it. I just bought the 1998 Godzilla in 4K because it was on sale this weekend on Voodoo. And it's not a good movie, but I remember seeing it in theaters and absolutely loving it. And, uh, it's not a great necessarily Godzilla movie, but it, it's fun. There are fun things about it. So, um, you know, there's nothing wrong with liking that. And I believe I was getting, I was in a discussion with, uh, Michaela who, who is on Twitter. Um, you can follow her, I believe that 1428 Elm. That's her Twitter handle. Um, she's, she's, a good strong horror fan and she and i were having a conversation about you know personal tastes in horror films and uh you know like she liked hereditary and she thought she was in the minority for liking hereditary and here i thought i was in the minority for not liking hereditary uh but we both liked us so we were good on that uh but no we had a we had a very 
uh, great discussion talking about, um, you know, how everyone can have their own personal taste and no one's opinion trumps anyone else's. You can come to my podcast and listen to my opinions and I'm hoping I just guide you in the, in the right way of a movie that you may or may not like or that I can at least present a film to you in a manner that makes you more interested in it so that it's not just you see what's on Rotten Tomatoes and it gets a 10% Rotten Tomatoes score, um, but that which then means, nope, don't go see it. There's nothing to salvage from it. You're only going to like 10% of the film or something like that. I, For me, the point of film criticism is to talk about the things you like, the things that you don't like, and if you know your audience and know what they like or what they dislike, directing them in their best way of saying, hey, you might like this or you might not like this, but you're ultimately going to have to decide for yourself. One of the things I loved about working at the movie theater a few years ago and being an usher was knowing my regular customers. And my regular customers um, would always come to me for their movie recommendations that weekend. And they're like, well, we think we want to see this. Did you see it? Okay, what did you think about it? And I knew by kind of a natural algorithm in my brain by going, okay, they've seen this, they've seen this, they've seen this, they see this. This is their typical taste in films. So if they like this movie, they're going to like this movie. Or if they like this type of movie, they're not going to like this type of movie because it's not what they're... It's, it may present itself in that light, but it's not exactly in that light. So I, was, I never got one of my regulars coming out saying, you were wrong. You recommended the wrong movie for me. They always came out and said, you were right. That was so good. Or I'd, I'd even say well I don't really know well, what are you seeing tonight okay well let me know what you think and then they'd come out and they tell me and, and it might interest me in seeing the movie you know it's that's that's the point of it that's the point in my, in my opinion of film criticism is you can talk about what's good you can talk about what's bad you can I would never tell somebody not to see a movie I will say what I won't personally see because of personal reasons but I will not ever trash one person for seeing a movie. In fact, like on my Twitter, I didn't respond to the comment because I was afraid that, um, you know, it could lead to a, a Twitter fight and those are the worst things possible. But this will lead us right into our final review. Um, Dark Phoenix. All right. This is the last of the uh, Fox X-Men films, which have had their own roads of uh, uh, hits and misses ups and downs um and this movie has gone through so much hell in production and, and post-production and um the, the fox disney deal and whether or not marvel was going to retain what they have done with the first class timeline or if they are even going to retain the same actors or if they're just going to scrap it do what they want I mean, they've basically have almost made it that New Mutants will never come out. Or if the New Mutants comes out, it's going to be reworked and retooled so it fits within the Marvel Cinematic Universe's version of the X-Men. Which may or may not work, but I, I kind of feel like that's kind of what happened with this movie. And, you know, when I saw that the Rotten Tomatoes score was 22% and uh, for Dark Phoenix and the Rotten Tomatoes score for X-Men Last Stand was 58%, I knew no way that this could be, that Dark Phoenix could be worse than X-Men Last Stand. And yes, I put X-Men Last Stand as the worst X-Men movie. It's not overly bad movie, 
uh, but it is the one I do not enjoy the most. It's the one I least enjoy, put it in those words. Um, it's got some really good moments. Of course, Hugh Jackman as Wolverine. Um, Famke Jansen as Jean Grey is really good. Seeing Kelsey Grammer as Beast really works for me. But what they did overall in the story for that one just did not work. They tried to do two different storylines. They didn't, you know, set up the Phoenix really well. And it just didn't, ultimately, it fell flat for me. And yes, I like X-Men Origins Wolverine. It's got issues. It's not fantastic. It screws up the timeline. But, and yes, it screws up the character of Deadpool, but I just don't consider that Deadpool. Um, but it's got Hugh Jackman as Wolverine and him doing his Wolverine performance. And of course, it's got the really bad CGI claws. But it's got Hugh Jackman, and that's what makes me like Origins over. I mean, it's got Hugh Jackman more of a focus in that role uh, as Wolverine than, than X-Men Last Stand. So, uh, when First Class came out, or when First Class was coming out, uh, I was not necessarily a, a huge fan um, of what they were going to do. I was not necessarily excited with uh, the casting of James McAvoy as Professor X, mainly because, you know, I'd seen him in Wanted, and that's about all I had seen him in prior to that and the fact that he was going to have hair like i was very upset that he was going to have hair uh and then i found out after the fact that that whole situation was he wanted to be bald the studio said no you're going to have hair so that won me over after the fact but then when i and then i just the fact that it was kind of screwing up the timeline more and that and my overall criticism of it was to present the, the friendship of xavier and magneto um, and it kind of crammed it into what feels like a week rather than a multi-year, multi-decade friendship that developed over time and then fell apart due to, uh, you know, this uh, philosophical divide between uh, their beliefs about the uh, about mutants and, and their place in the world. Uh, but overall, I really enjoyed First Class. I, I, out of the First Class timeline, I think it's the one I like the least. Uh, but out of the X-Men films in total, it's one of the ones I really like. And then, of course, Days of Future Past really hit it out of the ballpark for me. It did the nice thing of like kind of celebrating what came before, fixing some of the inconsistencies, and then setting it on a new path. And then Apocalypse, other than some of the character design choices that they made for Apocalypse, I actually enjoyed po Apocalypse. And I did a recent thing where I got them all in 4K um, last year, and I sat down and I watched all three back-to-back. And I think that's what you're going to have to do with Dark Phoenix as well, to really appreciate Dark Phoenix in, in, a, in a sense. Is when I watched First Class, Days of Future Past, and Apocalypse together, it tells more of an actual solidified story. It's telling more of this journey that these characters have gone through. When you've got years apart between, you kind of forget certain character moments, and then they're referencing back to those character moments, or you're seeing the results of certain moments or certain choices that they made and seeing the consequences of them. I think that's why I like the John Wick films uh, a lot. It's, it's, it's action and reaction, uh, action and consequence. So I think when, when Dark Phoenix comes out, I think I'm going to do a whole, you know, watch of those. Uh, it puts more, like, it's still not the best adaptation of the Dark Phoenix storyline, 
uh, Dave and I were discussing that on, on Twitter the other day. Um, well, yesterday. And it's not the best adaptation of that storyline, but it does a good enough job. And, it, and it's more of a solid film than I think people want to give it credit for. Visually, it's very stunning. I think, though, had they... Because uh, I know that they reworked the last act to be on more terrestrial that they I think that they planned originally for it to be more in the space uh, I, I kind of wish they had done it more in space and that's that's the main problem with this film is because you know it's gone it had gone through reshoots it had gone through its production was you can feel the edits you can feel what they were going to explore more and that they had to drop because of the issues you know this was originally supposed to come out in february then they postponed it to june you can feel parts that were cut out arcs that they were going to explore that just kind of then fell to the wayside in fact that this is the first out of the i think the first class series that falls under two hours i might have that wrong first class might have been under two hours um that really falls under two hours i feel like this should have been a two hour 20 minute movie which would have added another 40 minutes to its runtime i believe because I, I, there are things that they were doing, and then they, it kind of feels rushed. When you have Jean going back to her home, that that all worked fine for me. But when Jean is then meeting Jessica Chastain's character, and and that whole thing really bugged me because the what, and I'm not going to spoil anything, but with what they they do there, it is like we're going to throw this one line, and then we're going to leave it at that. We're not going to explain anything else. We're not going to do anything else with that. We're just going to say, these are the bad guys. This is what they intend to do. That's it. We're not going to go more into the in-depth of why they are here, why they've been here, what they've been doing here, why did they come here, um, or anything like that. Why are they the way that they are? Uh, it just, they give you a reason of why why they want the phoenix force but they're they, and the, the, so it just kind of goes you know jean going and finding something out with her family then jean meeting jessica chastain's character and then we basically get the final bit which is the final fight and we truly don't get we get a little bit of the dark phoenix and this isn't a spoiler because they've already talked about it in the trailer and I actually had no issue with it because that was my main, my main complaint over this first class kind of timeline is Mystique should not have been the main focus of this storyline. I think that was pushed by Jessica Lawrence. Uh, it wasn't so much necessarily in the first movie, but then she became a big, big actress after first class. She was really hitting it with more movies and more movies. She had Hunger Games in her belt. She was doing more Oscar-nominated uh, pictures. So... I think like it became part of her contract that we needed to focus more on her and I don't think we needed to focus on her. So her death in this was fine in my opinion. It then took her out of the movie and this this is one thing I will spoil and I'm, I'm sure people are already aware of this line in the movie and this is what I mentioned earlier about the personal politics in it. I had no problem she delivers she's having a conversation with Charles and she says you know well, you know what? Most of the women end up saving the men in, in this team anyways. I have no issue with that because it's been primarily true. But then she goes, maybe we should call it ex-women. And it's like, that's your personal politics entering it in. That's I, I've seen enough reporting about it where producers are saying that the name of X-Men is problematic. 
I'm sorry, but that's the name of the team. It's the name of the comic. And you want to change that, you're dishonoring Stanley. This is Stanley's creation. It's not supposed to be promoting male supremacy over females or anything like that. It's just the name of a comic book team that dress in spandex and leather and fight bad guys. That's all it is. So I had no problem with the first part of the line, but the, the second part of that line is so cringeworthy and so takes you out of the movie. I mean, I came out of it, I see Jessica Lawrence. That's, that's, that's what I see. I don't see Mystique, I don't see Raven Darkholm. I see the actress and her personal politics. And whether or not it's Jennifer Lawrence's personal politics, I don't know, but that's what happens. That's the consequence of it. That's what takes me out of my entertainment. So that's one of my big negatives of this film was that particular moment. I think if you cut that out of there, I, I really don't have an issue. I, that particular word, even, just that word, and I don't have an issue with the scene because she's making a very valid point and she's making a very valid point in the character choices that Charles has made these past 10 years since Apocalypse. And I think that, that this is, again, where you feel kind of some of the editing, some of the reworking, some of the rewriting, the reshooting is, you know, ultimately we're seeing a different character arc for Charles and they kind of try to portray him in a more villainous light, which is right in some part, but wrong in others. And it's, and it feels a little uncharacteristic and it just doesn't feel well fleshed out enough. And you don't have enough runtime for them to really kind of follow it through because then by the time you're entering into the final act, it's all resolved, everything's okay, it's accepted. Um, then you get to kind of the end that wraps everything up and it's bittersweet. It's not the best wrap up. Uh, I, I do like the final scene and the final sequence uh, at a cafe uh, because of the friendship uh that's there but i i it just it's a little bittersweet it's not really wrapped up tightly in my opinion i do like um i, I do like ty sheridan as, as cyclops he is one i would i would try to keep over into the mcu casting i would try i don't think they're going to be able to because i know nicholas holt has looked at doing other projects i would try to keep him on his beast Beast looks spot on in this in this film. I think they finally perfected him. They've steadily kind of changed his look through each of the films, and this is the one where he looks the best. And for the design changes with Mystique, it looked better in the film than what we saw in the trailers. It's not perfect, but it it, it looked better uh, than what we have seen in stills. So I didn't really have any issues with that. Uh, some characters kind of get the short end of the stick. I'm looking at you, Quicksilver. Um, Kurt finally got to shine as Nightcrawler and um, we got to see Storm have some badass moments I know Alexandra Ship was complaining that she didn't get enough moments in the film which yeah I mean she's not wrong and, and I would have agreed with her more if in one particular scene uh, it panned out the way that Xavier wanted it to pan out but thanks to uh, Scott Cyclops uh, it didn't I would have agreed with her more had it gone the other way than what it does in the film uh, because she has some really cool moments and I think she really does a good job. I would even carry her over into the MCU. I really, really want them to carry over James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender as Cy uh, Cyclops, as Charles Xavier and Eric Lynch here Magneto um, because 
like I said at the, uh, when I was talking kind of about the, the franchise and the soul, I was not really thrilled with James McAvoy's casting at first, but then when I saw First Class, he won me over completely. And then when I found out even more that he had wanted to shave his head for First Class and then the studio told him no, he even won me even further. And with each film, he's just won me over more and more with his performance. And even with this kind of weird character shift that they give him in this film, I think that um, he still is as good as Charles Xavier. And Michael Fassbender as Eric Lynchier as Magneto is really good. He knows how to portray those kind of dubious uh, characters, kind of those uh, characters that have uh, a conflict about what they know is right and what they know is wrong and then wanting to do whatever they need to do to achieve their their goal um so i've heard a lot of people say that this is the worst x-men movie i i wholly disagree i do not agree with that rotten tomato score um the comment that i i've gotten on twitter because i said i think i'm going to be in the minority of actually liking this movie and that's really hard for me when, when it's getting such a negative response other than a transformers movie because i end up typically liking the transformers movies if it's getting an overly negative response i go and i see the movie i typically have about the same type not necessarily an extremely negative response but i have a kind of lackluster response to the film but this one kind of worked in the opposite for me uh it's not perfect it's got issues uh the third act is rushed uh, there's some questionable CGI, but there's some really good CGI moments. Um, hell, when Magneto is having all the guns just kind of come off a rack and just kind of circle a character, it's just like so kind of badass. Um, and then like just the the you know they put all their budget in and look for the Phoenix effects, uh, and that's what's r really cool. A nice little surprise mutant cameo in there as well, which was really awesome. Um, but they, they, you know, there are just things that they didn't have enough time to set up. You, you can, can feel the pressure they were under to wrap this up. I feel like uh, they had maybe another movie or two planned, but with the Fox Disney deal, that just kind of all went out the window. And uh, I've got an interesting theory of how we can introduce mutants into the MCU. Uh, if you want to want to know, you can. DM me on Twitter and I'll let you know what my personal thoughts are um, but I, I, I will not say that this is the worst one the worst one will always I think stand for me as X-Men Last Stand uh, and I, like I said I think if this is seen within the context of, of just first class Days of Future Past um, uh, Apocalypse and Dark Phoenix and watched pretty much back to back I think you'll have it's, it's going to be a solid more I think I've been saying that a lot about a lot of these kind of multi-franchise films. I, I think there's something to it. I mean, we can certainly see it within the Marvel Cinematic Universe for, you know, just the whole phases that they've done. And we've seen the character growths and the character arcs uh, when you watch them kind of more back to back. And I think that that's where this film will ultimately do better. Uh, but I am excited for the MCU uh, version of the X-Men one thing I ask them is, please do the darn costumes. Please do the darn costumes. Because I was so excited at the end of Apocalypse. We were getting their costume looks, and then we go with the Grant Morrison looks for Dark Phoenix. And it's so disappointing because they're so stupid. I hate those X jumpsuits like that. They are not cool. They are not 
great and I want to see my X-Men in their X costumes. Like how cool would it have been to see Jean in the actual Dark Phoenix costume? It would have been so cool. So cool. And I want like I got so mad at the end of the Wolverine that they had an alternate ending uh, where he opened up a case and it actually had his costume and the reason they didn't go with that ending was that because like 65% or 75% of the audience didn't know what that meant and I'm like how do you how are you a fan of Wolverine and do not know what the yellow spandex costume they heck they freaking make a joke about it in the first X-Men movie so I hope that with the MCU finally getting these characters back that they can have these characters in the costumes. They've been pretty good with costumes so far, uh, so I really hope we can see Cyclops in his kind of blue suit, uh, that we can see Jean in kind of her um, green and, I think it's green and red or green and blue. I, I can't quite remember exactly how her original costume looked. Uh, you know, we can actually get a good Archangel, an angel character, um, because they've just given him the shaft in each of the movies that he's shown up in for the X-Men movies. Um, but I just hope that we can we can get more of the kind of traditional X-Men look uh, now that they're going to be part of the MCU. But I think for Dark Phoenix, it's going to fall for a 4 out of 5 out of, for me. I mean, I have some issues with it, but overall, it, it, it did a lot better job than X-Men Last Stand. And, um, you know, I, I just I think the main problem that it falls down to is it was heavily edited, it was heavily rushed i think they felt had a lot of pressure on post-production i think simon kimberg wanted to do a more grand movie than what he was able to do but at least he got some of what he wanted in there and actually there's not enough that really throws back i, I was so afraid from the trailers of a lot of it was going to be a lot of last stand moments and they weren't so that was really good and i and i really appreciated that from simon i really appreciated that from the team behind it um you know, I'm sorry if you guys didn't like it. I'm not going to pick any fights for people who didn't like it. They have their every right to, to not like it. Uh, I'm just not going to necessarily engage with people uh, on Twitter in a format that can't allow a civil discussion to go in place. Maybe I'll respond to that comment on there. Um, maybe not. It just depends on how I feel and how articulate I can feel um, on the platform because I don't want it to come off that I'm attacking him and I don't want him to attack me. We're both valid in our opinions, and so uh, I just don't think I'm necessarily going to respond to it. Uh, I know that as an X-Men fan, I'm kind of sad to see that this is the end of this era, but I'm excited for what's going to come next. I hope that they are able to carry over some of the actors, because I think that they've done great jobs in those roles. Um, we'll see how they can go about casting um, you know, a new Wolverine, uh, if they're going to... I think they need to. I think you need to have Wolverine in that in that team aspect. I think that's something that's felt like it's been missing from the last two X-Men movies. Um, oh, no. No, sorry. He is in Apocalypse very shortly. Uh, but it's definitely, you can feel it missing from this one. Um, and, I mean, it's situationally within kind of the timeline of, of the world. We know it makes sense. I understand that. Uh, but, you know, it just, it, it just felt like it was missing. You know, he's a part of that team. Uh, I can't remember if he is a part of the Dark Phoenix saga in the comics. Uh, I know Scott definitely is, but uh, I can't can't quite remember if Logan's part of it or not. But 
you know, I think that's uh, I think that's gonna do it for my review of Dark Phoenix. I think I'm gonna be one of the few that kind of had more of a positive reaction to it. I didn't hate what I saw. Uh, it kept me invested. Uh, you know, I was fine with some of the choices that they made, not fine with some of the other choices that they made. But overall, we weren't going. This movie had so much going against it that I think it had an impossible task that it was going to succeed at all. And I know it's going to be the lowest debuting X-Men film. Um, I just hope that now that it's back with the MCU, that we can get a cohesive, fantastic, wonderful X-Men franchise from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So we'll see what they have planned for us, because they haven't quite fully... It's not going to be until after Spider-Man Far From Home that we get uh, kind of an announcement of the next slate of movies. I really hope that they kind of decide to work X-Men into the next phase. Uh, you know, we don't need necessarily an origin story for the X-Men. We just need to have it be, you know, we've got Charles, we've got Magneto, we've got the Brotherhood, we've got the X-Men, and let's just go from there. Let's, let's, let's just establish the mutants within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Let's go and start these uh, stories. Let's go and start incorporating these characters with some of the Avengers. Uh, and... Let's see what we got coming uh, in the future. Well, I, I guess I lied. I said this was going to be a little bit of a shorter one, and now I see that it's about an hour and 13 minutes long. Um, that usually happens when I ramble. So, uh, you know, if you guys um, want to shoot me some emails at uh, criticsnotcynics at gmail.com for anything you guys want me to cover on the podcast. Um, I know I'm getting a ton of screeners, uh, and I've got a ton of catching up to do on some of these screeners. Uh, so there's going to be probably an episode two here in the upcoming future that's going to be dedicated purely to screeners and uh, some other movies. I think this week I'm going to try to get out to see uh, Shaft and Men in Black uh, International. Uh, I know I'm going to get a chance to see Yesterday, which has seemed like it's getting some tepid responses from people on Twitter. Uh, I'm a Beatles fan, so I think uh, I think regardless if the movie's great or not, um, I'm still going to probably enjoy it because it's got Beatles music. Uh, it's probably not going to be nearly as good as, as Rocket Man was, but um, I think I know that's coming up, so I'll probably be covering that on the podcast next week. Uh, I may take a break next week, actually. Now I think about it, like I've said, work is we're in our peak season at work, so it's going to be busy. If I'm going to get out and see um, yesterday and see Men in Black International and see Shaft, um, if uh, there's any other movies that are coming up, I can't remember if there's anything else coming out next week that, that I was interested in seeing. Um, I might take a break just to be able to get a chance to watch those movies and then later do an episode on them. We'll see. It's just going to have to depend on how this week goes at work and uh, if I feel like I can fit in time. You know, I normally record on Fridays, but the past two weeks I've been recording on Saturdays. So we'll see. Uh, but as always, thank you guys for listening. Uh, you know, if you haven't followed me on Twitter, you can follow me at CriticsNTCynics on Twitter. Uh, if you want to shoot me an email um, to discuss any movies on upcoming episodes or any video games uh, on an upcoming episode, books, anything else, uh, you can just send me an uh, email at CriticsNotCynics at gmail.com. If you're an independent uh, filmmaker and you want me to talk about your movie, you can send me one there. Uh, if you've got a screener link available for it, I'm open for any screeners. I'll try to get to them in a timely manner, but you know, if I were doing this uh, as a full-time job, if I were able to make money off of this right now, 
I would do that in a heartbeat, um, but that's not currently the case. So, uh, you know, I'll get it in when I can get it in. I'm trying to do better because I've got a ton of them uh, and I feel bad because I haven't responded to a few of my emails uh, to some of the people that I've been coordinating with for screener links. So, uh, but, you know, if you want me to talk about it, much like David, uh, you know, just shoot, you can shoot me a DM on there as well. And, uh, you know, I'll be more apt to uh, try to get it done, especially if there's going to, you know, if we're cross promoting each other. So um, I again want to thank David for promoting the show and, uh, and thank you again for him sending me that screener for Soul to Keep. I really enjoyed the movie and uh, I, I look forward to any other projects he has coming out in the future. All right, guys. Well, we'll see you next time.